back then. So this morning is uh, July 29th, a couple days away from my 19th anniversary with Jennifer. Is Miss Jen in the back? Yeah. Hey, she's been a wonderful blessing these 19 years. Amen. The Bible says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Amen. The Bible says that. If in your marriage right now you don't feel like you won the lottery, praise God, we're in life-changing ministries. God can change a human being. Fight for that. Hold out for it. Love them. Encourage them. Amen? It's the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, are you in Daniel 12? Our message today is called Time to Shine. So are you in Daniel 12? Yeah. yeah. I think you can see that if you don't speak back to me today, we will not move forward. So it's going to be essential that you uh, break out of your Caucasian concrete <laughs> and work to interact. I mean, Jesus will not get upset with you if you agree out loud. Amen? Amen. <laughs> there we go. It's working. Here comes Daniel 12, verse 9. He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. An angel spoke to Daniel and told him of a time when the wicked would continue to be wicked. In the same chapter, he said knowledge is going to increase everywhere. Boy, has that been true from Daniel's time to ours from, say, 500 B.C. till now. Think about the last hundred years. I, I'm not ashamed to say that when Jennifer was in college, we still had to use a typewriter and had correction film. How many of you in here have never touched a typewriter in your life? Raise your hand. Look how knowledge is increasing. How many of you have never been in a home that did not have internet? How many of you have phones right now that have more computing power on your phone than your first computer? Yeah. Is that crazy? Yeah. NASA sent people to the moon with less computing power than is in your smartphone. Things are on the increase. That's just how this is working. Suffice it to say the wicked are also doing their job. What is the wicked's job? To continue to be wicked. Look at 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 12. Tell me when you're there. It'll be a race. You ought to be turning in your Bible. If you're not turning in your Bible, look on your neighbor's Bible. There. If you don't have a Bible yeah. with you and your neighbor doesn't have a Bible, find one on your phone, but don't play solitaire. Yeah. The Holy Ghost is watching. Come on. <laughs> Tell me, 2 Timothy 3, are you there? Yeah. Come on, Fred's there, so we'll move forward. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Isn't that a terribly convicting scripture? Yeah. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The wicked's job is to be wicked. And what's our job? To live such a godly life that persecute us. Watch what verse 13 says. While evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. Come on, friends. To suffice it to say that wicked, evil men, imposters, they're doing their part. The times are dark. Maybe even darker than many of us realize. Prosperity in our country has a way of blinding us to our true spiritual condition. Maybe we could go through kind of a state of the union at the moment. I don't want to be depressing, 
But let's just grab a few things from the headlines. Is that okay? Yes. If we did that, one of the things that you might see right away is that a man named Dan Cathy is under attack. Who's Dan Cathy? Chick-fil-A. He's the CEO of Chick-fil-A. Now, he's under tremendous pressure from every direction. I want to read you the statement which got him in trouble, and this is not excerpted, it's in its entirety. It was a short statement. Well, guilty as charged. We are very much supportive of the family. The biblical definition of the family unit. We are a family-owned business, a family-led business, and we are married to our first wives. We give God thanks for that. We operate as a family business. Our restaurants are typically led by families. Some are single. We want to do anything we possibly can to strengthen families. We are very much committed to that. We intend to stay the course. We know that it might not be popular with everyone, but thank the Lord we live in a country where we can share our values and operate in biblical principles. Did anybody hear anything grossly offensive there? No. That was in response to a question that was related to whether or not he supported gay marriage. Now, I'd just like to show you that some of the opposition to that has been that the San Francisco mayor, the Chicago mayor, and the Boston mayor have all taken a pledge that they will not allow another Chick-fil-A franchise to open in their cities. I don't know what gives a mayor the right to limit private enterprise, but that is the response to that statement. Right now, in California, in the cities of uh, Mountain View, uh, the city of San Jose and the city of Santa Rosa, Chick-fil-A's are either, either being blocked from completing their construction or have a line of protesters in front of them trying to shut them down as we speak because of that statement. So on the 16th, when given a chance to recount, he says this, As it relates to society in general, I think we're inviting God's judgment on our nation. When we shake our fist at him and say, we know better than you as to what constitutes a marriage. I pray God's mercy on our generation that it has such a prideful and arrogant attitude to think that we could have the audacity to redefine marriage. Do you love him or hate him? Can you imagine that we live in a time where that statement, or even those two combined, could cause national outrage, be on every major news outlet that evening? I don't find it remotely controversial. And I don't think that the World War II generation would have found it remotely controversial. So while debating this with someone yesterday in a loving way, I would just like to say that Jesus, the church, any real spirit-filled believer absolutely loves humanity, absolutely loves homosexual people, absolutely loves people with any kind of problem. Bar none loves humanity. In fact, the Christian community could stand back and take note that a minority group within our country has stood up with such a consistent, loud theme that they have changed the tone of a nation regarding them. I would hate to say that in seminaries we might need to study the social movement of the gay and lesbian community, but we might. Because they've impacted our nation in a way that Christianity has failed to impact our nation over the last 50 years. Hear me. Don't hate them. Love them. In some cases, imitate their sincerity. You know what else? 
I'm not enough to see people set free. I want to tell you that in any healthy church, people have been set free from everything that can be set free from. There are no discrimination issues here. You know what there's an issue of? There's an issue of moral clarity. We can love people and still say things are wrong. If you can't learn to do that with your teenager, you're going to be a terrible parent. I want to tell you, start at two. Start at 18 months. Start as early as they begin to exert their will. It is not loving to not point out wrong behavior. In fact, it's the most loving thing you can do. The first words in red in your Bibles are repent, the kingdom is at hand. That wasn't written to the gay community. That was not written to the straight community. That was not written to the black community, the white community. That was written to mankind, friends. We all have the same message. It's repent. But in our state of the union at the moment, it is an unpopular message. And while the two people I was speaking with yesterday were church attenders, they were grossly offended with what they heard from Dan Cathy. Have you ever said we just need to get back to the Bible in our nation? Has that ever been a thought of yours? I became curious. It's almost impossible to know what Bible sales are in this country, right? Because they're sold from different publishers, there's different kinds. Anybody in here got a New American Standard? Raise your hand. Anybody in here got an NIV? Raise your hand. Anybody in here got a Living? Anybody got a King James? I'm sorry. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a universally accepted translation, including me. Um, it's hard to know what the sales are when we have so many different kinds. But after polling Bible publishers, it seems that in 2005, there were approximately $500 million in Bible sales. Does that sound like a lot to you, $500 million? It does to me too. And they point out that every year it's the best-selling book, and I pointed that out many times. That does kind of skip over some things, though. In 2005, the second best-selling book was Harry Potter. And the Bible only outsold it by twice. That was it. Now, the article that I found that in and the research that was done is lauding it. Oh, man, that's fantastic. No, that means only twice as many people wanted to buy a Bible as Harry Potter. Is that not disturbing as far as the signs of the times? I mean, is it not? You ask, I'm, I'm asking you. Say, no, Pastor, it's not disturbing. Or, yes, Pastor, it is disturbing. While we're on this topic, I want to show you something about missions, and then we'll move on. Okay? Is it okay if I do that? Yes. So what does missions have to do with the State of the Union? Well, therein lies our message today. An estimated 95% of all money raised for church budgets in North America, 95% goes to domestic use. 5% of church budgets, I'm not talking about your budget, I'm talking about church leaders' budgets, 5% goes towards missions. Of that 5%, four and a half of it goes to missions that have been established for 70 years. Think about that. That leaves half of 1% to new missions efforts. Because we live in a skeptical society and a skeptical generation. Did you know that in the Great Depression, as per capita of our income, a percentage of our income... We still gave 10% of church budgets towards missions. And of the whole United States, the average person still contributed more of their income towards their church budget than we do today. 
After 50 years of the most prosperity that the world has ever known, we give less for our churches today than they did in the Great Depression, in the midst of it. Now, you can find that statistic from almost everybody who's looked into it. It's not debated at all. Is that kind of odd? I found it odd. Let's look at some other things that we do spend some money on. Is that okay? What do you think Americans spend on beer? $500 million in Bibles. What do you think we spend on beer in a year? Somebody venture a guess. Somebody bold. Put it out there. 2.5 billion. 700 million. A billion. How much? 5 billion. 5 billion. I feel like we're on the prices right now. Anybody want to come spin the wheel? Listen. Check this out. Beer sales in 2011 were $97 billion in North America and are projected to be up by 1.4% in 2012. Now, some of you are much better with math than I am, so I did this ahead of time. That means that if we had uh, $97 to spend, 97 we would donate 50 cents towards a Bible and the other $96.50 towards beer as an American budget. Does that surprise anybody? It did me. Do you know that that's far more, many times more, than all foreign aid given from this country to other countries? Many times more. It's not even close. Have you ever thought if we just quit giving so much money to other countries as a nation, we'd solve our problems? If we went one year without beer, we would solve our problems. Which do you think is likely to happen? Okay. Girls, are y'all feeling good about that? Were you sitting there going, I don't drink beer? How much do you think we spend on cosmetics each year? Okay, now, I'm not talking about Botox. I'm not talking about liposuction. I'm not talking about implants of various kinds, right? We're just talking about the paint that young people apply to their face. Right? What do you think that is? Seven billion dollars a year in North America alone. You know how many people are having cosmetic surgeries and non-cosmetic, uh, I'm sorry, non-surgical cosmetic treatments like injections? About 12 million last year. 12 million people. That's 14 times what we spent on Bibles last year. We spent more money on makeup by 14 times than we did Bibles last year. Is that an interesting thing? Yeah. I, I found that surprising. So I looked at Coca-Cola because I thought some of you might not drink beer. Yeah. And if you don't drink beer, you can say, well, that's not me. How many in here drink Coca-Cola? How many of you drink a Coca-Cola product? Did you know that Coca-Cola has over 200 lines that are subsidiaries that are owned by Coca-Cola? Yeah. They're also in 200 countries or territories. Is that amazing? Yeah. Coca-Cola is in places there are no churches. Hmm. Coca-Cola in North America alone has $80 billion in assets. That's not its sales. That's in holdings. Its sales each year are $46 billion. It's 93 times what we spend on Bibles. $46 billion in North America is spent on Coca-Cola. Isn't that interesting? You know, if you know where somebody's priorities are based on the money that we spend, uh, is it any wonder then that 
the masses in our society find Dan Cathy's statement so upsetting. You know, I, this is just, this is an Eric Stevens quote, so it won't be eloquent. eloquent. The Bible is that book, friends, that everybody thinks they know what it says, and nobody reads it. The Bible is that book. The man that was so confident in telling me what Jesus would and would not approve of yesterday couldn't quote a single verse. Not a single verse. He couldn't tell me that his best friend was an Anglican priest who was homosexual. Yeah. And he expected me to be mad. I'm not, I'm not mad at that man. I pray he has a revelation. I'm mad at the one that's defending the behavior. This is our last statistical category. Because you can get bogged down in these things, can't you? Get a little beat up by it, Cody. I'm going to warn you. I put this one last because it hurts. Every single second, right? Like five seconds just went by. Every second. $3,075.64 is spent on pornography. Every second. This is a worldwide statistic. Every single second, 28,256 internet users are viewing pornography. Every single second. Every 39 minutes in the United States alone, not worldwide, United States alone, every 39 minutes, a new pornographic movie has been finished being filmed. Every 39 minutes, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's how big that industry is. On a worldwide scale, it's $97 billion. It's about what Americans spend on beer, the world spends on pornography. In the US, it's about $13 billion. That works out to be $44.67 for every man, woman, and child in the country. Every year on pornography. That means that if you had $135 in your hands right now, and you are average American statistic, $135 in your hands right now, visualize that. Some of you to feel good. You haven't seen $135 in a while. That means you spend $130 on porn and $5 on the Bible. What does that say? So, well, Eric, I got a Bible a long time ago. That's really not my point. My point is, is what we invest in as a society. Is that hurtful? It is to me. Worldwide, far and away, the top search word, period, of any country in any language, anywhere, is the word porn. P-O-R-N. The most searched word in human history. Do we have a problem? Internet users who view porn as, um, as put together in a survey, so you have to you have to understand, people are lying. 42.7%. You know, peer-to-peer -peer networks? 35% of all downloads on a monthly basis on peer-to-peer -peer networks, 35% of all downloads are pornography. Christians. Christians polled. Not the world, Christians. Defined as evangelical Christians. That way you can't blame the Catholics. 47% say that pornography is a problem in their home. So 47% of the people don't say that they have viewed porn. They're simply saying, 
Somebody in my house is. Yeah. You think it's a problem? Some of the things to invest in are companies like Covenant Eyes. <laughs> because decent people are doing everything they can to get rid of this, and we're in a flood of what Peter called dissipation. By the way, the breakdown for male and female is going to surprise you. It is 72% male, 28% female. 28% of all pornography viewed is now by females. I have the best statistic for last, but this is second to last, what I'm about to tell you. 26% of all pornography is purchased by people who make $50,000 a year to $75,000 a year. 35% of all pornography is purchased by people who make $75,000 a year or more. When you put that together, 61% of all pornography being purchased is by people who make $50,000 a year or more. That doesn't sound like a teenage problem anymore, does it? Doesn't. Here's the best statistic. This is the one that made me read all of those others. The countries with the least pornographic access and that have done the most as a society to ban pornography. Saudi Arabia, Iran, Syria, Bahrain, Egypt, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, Cuba, China, and last we squeeze a tiny little Christian nation in what does that tell you? What does that tell you when the top consumers of pornography are Christian nations? And the only ones that have taken a serious stand against it are Islamic nations. If you were not a believer and you were just doing a sociological experiment, who would you say was winning that war? I didn't read us that just to depress us. All of our investment has been at home, friends. 95% of all church budgets are investing in something that is domestic because it feels like the thing to do. In fact, when we go on a missions trip, one of the things that we get from people here, even in this body, very regularly is, but there are people here who have needs too. And I know that there are. 95% of every dollar raised in every church, everywhere, goes domestically anyway. Is it working? Doesn't seem to be, does it? Seems like it may have even caused us to get the idea that God would bless a selfish attitude. Maybe it's time for a new strategy. You'll turn to the book of Matthew. Yeah. Yeah. So you're awake, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe somber because that's hard to hear. Maybe it, takes, it hurts your heart like it hurts mine. There is a solution, friends. It may not be what you think it is. How many times have our politicians told us if we spend more money on education, we will solve the world's woes? How many times have you heard that they're going to decrease taxes on you, raise them on someone else, who that other person is, we don't know, and they're going to invest in education, and the next four years will produce a better life for everybody to know? It's never worked, has it? I'm not suggesting that it's irrelevant, our election season. I'm not saying that. I'm a pastor, not a politician. What I am saying is traditional methods, they're not working. And if what we have done 
is focus 95% of all of our efforts at home and it is not producing the desired effect in our society, could we not say, maybe it's time for a strategy change? I think that it's time for a strategy change. So as I began to scour the word, I mean a really difficult, obscure passage to find. Pastor Piro had to help me with it. Took 10 lexicons, a supercomputer. It was in Matthew, it was the 28th chapter. Yes, I am being sarcastic or facetious, if you prefer. I can't spell facetious, but I can say it. Are you in Matthew 28? Here comes the 18th verse. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciple of your nation. Therefore, go and make, a disciple, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You know, even when we can quote the, the Great Commission, we don't often emphasize teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. It's not enough to believe on Jesus, friends. You have to obey. Amen. It's not enough to walk down an aisle at a Billy Graham crusade. You have to do what Lord Jesus says. And surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Lest we uh, miss these obvious scriptures, turn with me to Acts 1. We're going to read 6 through 8, and then I promise I will move on to something that you don't have memorized. But what good is it to memorize it if we're not doing it? 95%, 95 of every $100 is spent domestically, and we have a society that is quickly becoming post-Christian Europe. It, I've been to Europe a couple times this year. We resemble post-Christian Europe more every day. And this week's newspaper headlines prove it beyond any shadow of a doubt. We are a razor's hair away from Amsterdam. We really are. And there will be a day in this country where they are selling human beings in windows the same way you can rent a concrete mixer at the local Home Depot. I promise it if the church doesn't do something. Here comes Acts 1, starting in verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Where do they live? Come on, Bible scholars, where do they live? Israel. At this time, Lord, are you going to do something for our nation? At this time, Lord, is your promise for our nation going to be fulfilled? Is that terribly selfish? Probably not. Is it focused inwardly? Yeah. Look how he redirects them. The Great Commission had already been given to all nations. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set for you by his own authority. If he had been an American televangelist, he would have said, give me $100 and my Father will send you back 700 and you can buy this anointed prayer cloth tonight for only the next five minutes and then the broadcast is going off the air. If you want the blessing in, in this year, then you have to participate now. But that's not what he said. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses at home, in the surrounding area, in the area outside of that, and to the ends of the earth. He was teaching them not to look inwardly for the blessings of God, but to begin to move outwardly, taking the blessings of God places. 
There is something that happens when we focus inwardly. Like the lake that we call Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, no outlets, only inlets. When you focus inwardly, you collect and collect and collect until you rot on the vine and die. But if we can turn and focus outward and look for somebody who is right here, somebody just a little further away, somebody further than that, and always seeking those who are estranged from God, it has a way of bringing power to your life. In fact, it's what the power of God is for. So maybe you don't spend too much money on cosmetics. Maybe you're not out there spending so much money on beer. Maybe it is not you. Maybe you're buying a Bible for somebody every day. The question still remains. Is my life inward focused? Wanting more, more, more. Or is it outward focused? When do we have enough? When do we have enough? 50 years of the world's greatest prosperity ever has produced a generation that gives less per capita, less as a percentage of your income than they did in the Great Depression. Can you imagine that? Now, none of us in here lived through the Great Depression, but all of you who have a clue about history admire the generation that did, and they were different. Something about them was different. Turn with me to Proverbs. It may seem to defy logic to say that going out to help other nations would in any way help ours. It may even seem irrational or maybe irresponsible to go and help other nations or support those who do. But look at what Proverbs 11 says. Tell me when you're there. In Proverbs 11, the 25th verse, a generous man will prosper he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. According to the living word of God, if you need revival in your life, it would be best to bring revival to someone else. If you are burdened in your life, the way to relieve that burden is to help someone else with their burden. The way to find life, Jesus said, was to lose yours. Why are we losing this battle? as a society because we focused on us instead of everyone else have you ever seen a generation more obsessed with their self-esteem more obsessed with the way they I, if I have heard a thousand times then I, I, I may have heard it a million times in conversation with Christians do you know how that made me feel I just cannot picture the great depression generation talking about that so much I mean they'd be happy to have food and share that food with people who didn't. Right? Our prosperity is blinding us to a truth. Now, I'm not anti-prosperity. I, I, I value having the money to buy a plane ticket to go somewhere. I, I value being able to give children things in Eastern Europe that don't happen. I value being able to go to the most rural villages that we can possibly find in Asia and give people things as a, as a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power and the love of the Savior. Amen. I love going to East Africa and doing the same thing. And by the power and grace of God, I will get to Central America and South America this year. This will leave Antarctica and it will leave Australia as untouched by this ministry. That's it. Maybe one of you will go there. 
I don't think I'm going to make it this year. We have to demonstrate. We have to work at an outward focused life. A life that God can bless. While you're in Proverbs, go to the 21st chapter. Are you all upset? No. I hope you're not. I'm not mad at you. I actually, when compared with the world, I think we do pretty good. But is that where the comparison is? No. I don't think you guys are spending $130 on porn and $5 on a Bible. I don't think that you guys are spending 97 times uh, on Coke what you could be spending on evangelism. I, I don't think that's happening. Having said that, we live in a society of such excess that if we don't take a serious stand, they'll never notice it. Never. In fact, the church has been hijacked by a lie that says they will see your blessing and they will call it God and they will begin to serve Him because you're blessed if that was true, which is not. But if it was true, why would they be serving God? Only for blessings. Doesn't that make Him a genie? A magic Santa Claus in the sky? Doesn't that make Him a fast food window? Of course, those are all things that you could plug into most American prayer and it would work. The prayer of Jabez. Jabez wouldn't recognize the prayer of Jabez, friends. <laughs> I don't want to talk about that. Let's go to the 21st chapter of Proverbs. 13th verse. <coughs> uh, I have this circled in my Bible. If you don't write in your Bible, I'm sorry. You should probably learn. But if you, if you just, it's such a holy book that you can't write in it, that's okay. Memorize it. Okay? <laughs> Uh, in my Bible, it says this across the top in my own writing. Don't ignore the poor. That's the King Eric commentary. That's what I got out of this. The 13th verse says, If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and will not be answered. Why is our nation not being answered? I said, but Eric, we are the most generous nation on the planet. <laughs> if Bill Gates gives you $100, is that the same thing as the widow giving two mites? What if God, thank you Brent Vincent, does not measure our lives by what we give, but what we keep for ourselves? Now are we the most generous people on the planet? No. Are we even as generous as the Great Depression generation? No. We're not, are we? We have a long ways to go. So, is this a, um, you are terrible Christian's message? Of course not. I'm telling you the way to turn this around as a society will never be to invest more at home. It will be to invest in other nations and let your people participate in it and see it. And when that happens, something magical, something of the love of Christ, a concern for other people begins to fill your life. And this is Christ-like. That is Christ-like. Another way to say it would be Christian. You know what is not Christian? To practice our theological kung fu in a spiritual safety box all day and night. To come and sing songs about blessings all day and night and never do anything. So I give to the local church. It better be a good church because most churches are taking 95% of everything that comes in and spending them on self-promotion. That's what they're spending them on. I don't have our statistic at the moment. I know we set out in the hopes that we could spend 10% and then it clips 20 and then 30 and I got a feeling when Patricia does the final numbers for us we're going to be in excess of 50 and if we can get to 90 we'll do it uh, I mean 
We are on a mission to set an example, not just for you, but for other churches, that the secret to the kingdom of God is caring about other people. The unsavory truth is that the church in the U.S. has become selfish and obsessed with the idolatry of the American dream as opposed to the gospel of the kingdom. Our best hope lies with the people that are in this room and rooms just like it that are scattered across the country in what might be referred to as remnant churches. But let us not go so far as to excuse ourselves from what the word of God said to Malachi. Because even in this room today, the word of God spoken to Malachi applies to us. So turn to the book of Malachi. You can find that by going to Matthew and then hanging a left. We have a Malachi in our children's church. He likes cake too. That's true. That's the best picture, Charlie. In the third chapter... Now, when I turn to the third chapter of Malachi, some of you, I don't want to say gospel-hardened, but let me say church-experienced people. Go, oh no, pastor's going to preach on tithe today. Because that's what the third chapter of Malachi is, is a big stick to beat people up with and say, you're under a curse if you don't tithe, right? How many of you have heard that message? I hope you didn't hear me preach it. If I did, I repent. Okay? If I did, I'm just saying, I, just saying, I'm sorry. That's not what the third chapter of Malachi is about. Inherently, it is about a selfish nature versus a selfless nature. It just so happens that their selfishness that brought a curse showed up with their money first. Good thing we're completely different than that. Good thing that we don't have a problem with our money. We who spend 97 times on beer what we would spend on a Bible. We don't have problems with money. I'm not trying to increase tithe here. Okay? So are we all right with that? Yeah. Yeah. If I was trying to increase tithe, would we be all right with that? Yeah. Only if it's going somewhere that the kingdom would go. Amen. You know what? If I'm building bigger houses, bigger barns, nicer cars to attract people to our church, you should run and probably slap me in the face and then run. You really should. Because I would deserve it. I am so sick to death of sitting on airplanes next to drunk Europeans that say, so, pastor, how is it that you afford to fly around the globe like this? As if the only way to accomplish anything for God is to be one of those people on TV that is robbing people in the name of Jesus. Amen. I do the same thing every time. I say, friend, do you see what those are? Those are calluses. You want to show me your hands? I work for a living. That's what happens. So, well, I thought you said you were in full-time ministry. Full-time ministers work if they belong to Jesus. I'm sorry you've met the other kind. We do plumbing in foreign countries. We change garbage disposals. We do whatever it takes. And if you met a different kind of Christian than that, let me tell you, I'm sorry. By the way, didn't you tell me you go to church? I, I'm, I'm getting good at that, by the way. And I have 12 hours with him. I mean, it's, it's great. You know, I'm like, get this guy another drink. He's going to need it because I'm just getting started with it. In the third chapter, here comes the sixth verse. Verse, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, we would all agree with that. But then if we don't like what he said, we say, you know, we're in the age of grace. Steve, this is the age of grace. Let's just lavish some more grace on you. Just go ahead and lavish it up, brother. More grace, more grace. Let's have a grace explosion. <laughs> it's absurd. Listen to what the God who does not change says. 
I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. If he did change, the first thing he would do would be abandon his faithless people. But because he made a promise, because you were worth making a promise, even if we've been utterly faithless, he will not change. He will be faithful. He is speaking of Israel, and if he doesn't keep his promise to Israel, why would you think he would keep his promise to you? Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away. Is that an Israeli problem or is that an American problem too? Have we turned away from our forefathers' way of walking with the Lord? Yeah. If Dan Cathy had said what he said during Washington's uh, inauguration as our first president, would the nation's media have attacked him? No. If they had said, if he said this during John F. Kennedy's inauguration, would the nation's media have attacked him? No. I don't think so. We have had a tremendous turning away. Say, so, well, that's not us, Eric. We love the Lord. Do you really think the Lord will not hold us responsible for our generation? <clears throat> well, Eric, I'm doing everything I can. I'm going to say I haven't. Maybe you're outworking me. But I haven't done everything I can. If I was doing everything that I could, I would wake up each day with a concern for a nation that thinks and knows what is in the Bible, has never read it, claims to be inheriting the kingdom, and will fall short of it and forever be in hell. I would care more about that. The truth is sometimes I care more about getting somewhere on time. I care more about a lot of things. You know, actually in line at Chick-fil-A, I've managed to get mad at people. They're taking too long. I have to have those waffle fries right now. <laughs> From my decrees and have not kept them, return to me. That's kind of like saying repent, and I will return to you. One of the truths of Malachi is that we need to take responsibility for not placing our priorities where the Lord's are. And we've drifted away. Now, if you're in the category that is running down the checklist right now going, I give 10% of my income to this church, Eric, uh, I can't be drifting away. I attend two uh, meetings a week. I cannot be drifting away. I'm going to tell you the Lord is not looking for people who want to meet the minimum so that they can say, I've done all that I needed to do, now save me. Hmm. He purchased your whole life. Amen. Your whole life. Who told you that if you tithed 10% and attended two meetings that you were good to go? It may have been that some American pastor said that. This one didn't. He wants your whole life. Period. Your whole life. You know, some pastors are scared to speak about this, not just because people will leave, but there's another issue. If you get really addicted to caring about other people, if you get good and just full of Jesus to the point where you get excited about doing things for other people, it might affect that 95% figure for them. It might mean that they don't have 95% of their budget to spend on themselves, I mean domestically. It might mean that in addition to the 10% you give to the church, other giving might go other places because your church is not doing it. Is there a family? Don't raise your hand. Is there a family in here that have been in churches that didn't support missionaries, but you did as a family? <laughs> there are families in here that were in churches that you, you loved the people and you enjoyed the community, but... You didn't really see that they were doing much, so you tried to do something? I'm not saying that's rebellious or renegade. I'm saying it's incumbent upon you as a believer. I'm saying you have no choice 
I'm saying that the life of every believer must be outward focused. Or it's not the life Jesus died to give you. He will only return to us or empower us when we return to Him by empowering Him or surrendering control of every area of our life to Him. Now listen to what He says. But you ask, how do we return to you? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. They were two different things to the Jewish people. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Because God needs to eat. Does God need to eat, friends? Why does he want food in his house? For the same reason that our grandparents that went through the Great Depression, when they came out of it, always kept food in their cupboard. They wanted to give it to somebody. They knew what it was to walk in there and not have anything. And so now that they did, they were ready. What they stored up was like Joseph's storehouse. It was stored up for difficulties that were coming. It was to be used for the kingdom, not for their pleasures. My grandmother could not stand to have an empty cupboard. She also grew things wherever she was. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. The truth is, is if we could get hold of the idea to give and that it is truly more blessed to give, not to the offering box, to God, than it is to receive, you would not be without. He's looking for people who will do His will. I didn't read you the statistics of the number of Americans that say they're hopelessly in debt and don't see a way to recover. The most prosperous nation in the history of the world is hopelessly in debt and doesn't see a way to recover. Because we're only meeting our needs, I'm sure. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and vines in your fields that will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all nations will call you blessed. This very verse has been twisted into a prosperity lie. It says that people are going to see your blessing and they're going to want it and therefore they're going to want God. I have never seen anybody call me blessed on the foreign mission field because I showed up and had more wealth than they did. Never. You know when they call you blessed? When you take of what God has given you and give it to them. This is not speaking of Israel being so rich that everybody goes, oh, Israel's blessed. It's speaking of Israel, which was commanded to take care of widows, orphans, and aliens, having received from God, and therefore the house of God could feed the nations, and the nations would call Israel blessed because they were used of God. Come on now. You know what is a seriously good feeling? Jennifer Hutchinson, you're about to see it. A seriously good feeling is to see somebody that never had anything received from a stranger. And they ask the same questions no matter how many times you go. We desire to go to your country. Why would you have come here? And you say the same thing. Jesus sent me here because he cares about you. And it does something, friends. You don't have to go to India to do that. You can do that with the teenager that's a cutter sitting in the mall off by themselves. You can do it anywhere, but it is always outward focused, whether it is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, or the ends of the earth. And if it is not outward focused, there's only one other direction you are capable of looking. 
And that's inward. And it's never been healthy. Never brought the blessings of God. I want you to be healthy. I want you to have the blessings of God. Is that fair? Is it pastor that I want those things? Yes. Then we have to have the conversation that Malachi has right here. Listen to this. You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have I said against you? Doesn't that sound like a conversation with a church person? You, you hear a difficult sermon? When did I do that? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out His requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? What good would it do to go be all upset and burdened about all of the problems in the world? What good would it do? I mean, I'm just living my life, you know. I work hard in my business. I pay my tithes and I come to church. I pay my tithes like paying my taxes. We now, but now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even those who challenge God escape. Do you hear where this dialogue goes? As we become selfish, the first thing that happens in our society begins that people will challenge God openly and society does not judge them for it. The first thing that happens is vile things be spoke, are spoken of as good and it looks like there is no real reason to serve God it might even turn out a whole generation of people that are sure they know what's in the Bible but have never taken the time to read it. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many people in this church have completed their entire Bible. But there's, a, there's an outline on the back table that we can do it in a year with less than 15 minutes a day. Anybody in here been saved more than a year? That's not to beat us up, friends. It's to say the world will learn what we value by what they see us doing, how they see us acting. Did you have a parent that looked at you at some point? Because I didn't. I had good parents. But did you have a parent that looked at you at some point and said, do as I say, not as I do? By the way, my mom's sitting here. She never said that to me. That was somebody else. But somebody else looked at me and said, do as I say and not as I do. Has anybody grown up enough to realize how absurd that statement is? Yes. Is there anybody in here that just recognizes that that is absolutely hypocritical trash? Yes. We can't do it as a church to the nations. We cannot look at them and say, do as we say, not as you see us doing. We can't do that. Amen. If even our children know that's hypocritical trash, what do you think the lost are going to think? Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. Come on now, sometimes we just need to have a conversation, don't we? Those who feared the Lord began to have a little a conference. A scroll of remembrance was written in His presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored His name. They began to have a little chat among themselves about repentance, about turning, about how to honor the Lord. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Do you know what the problem with our nation has been? There is no distinction between those who serve God and those who do not. You cannot pick out those who serve God in the food court at the mall. You cannot pick them out in the voting booth. 
You cannot pick them out anywhere other than church and in churches. You often cannot pick them out. God meant for there to be a distinction and it cannot come through our creed. It can't. Spencer could believe that the wall is white and I could be certain that it's purple. If we don't speak those convictions, if we don't add action to it, what difference would it make? The church cannot stand back and say, do as I say and not as I do. The first words of Jesus were, go to the nations. You'll get an example. You need to teach them. The word teach has to do with setting the physical example. It's more like training. And if we don't do it, they don't learn. And if we don't do it, God can't bless us. You may have everything in the world, but how many people have everything in the world and are hollow is all get out? They spend $47 every year per capita surfing porn trying to find something exciting in life. They spend 97 times what they would on a Bible, on an intoxicating beverage to numb themselves to the agony of a meaningless existence. Hmm? Are you hearing Yes. This is our nation. Hey, anybody in here a citizen? There are a few of you in here that are citizens, huh? John, you're a citizen now. <laughs> Praise God. That means that we have some responsibility here. Yeah? Don't we? Yeah. Okay, we're going to spend the rest of the time, which is a short time for those of you that are obsessively watching your clocks, a short time looking at what we can actually do. Is that okay? Yeah. Amen. This is not an aside from missions. I mean, friends, I want my name on that scroll of remembrance. Yeah. Zeke, you want your name on the scroll where God said those will be mine? Well, I want to get it on there, man. If it's written in my blood, I don't care. I want it on there. I want the Lord to know in that day when I had a choice, I stood with Him. I don't want it to be when I had no choice. I want it to be when I had a choice. I cared about what he cared about. Come on now. Anybody want their name on that scroll? Yeah, I do. In Exodus 10, we find this. This is not an injunction, or, or this is not as opposed to missions. This is in conjunction with it, alongside it. This I call the Goshen factor. This comes from Exodus 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. Can you imagine that God would ever want there to be darkness? Come on now. You ever seen an art exhibit? Anybody in here seen an art exhibit? Yes. Yeah, we have a few artists in the room. One of the things that they pay careful attention to is lighting. And sometimes if you want to accent a very special painting, some work of masterpiece, you put a light just on it, and what do you do with all the other lights? You dim them. Sometimes the darkening that is going on in our society was meant to do something. It's meant to accent God's people. Amen. God caused a darkness that could be felt to fall upon Egypt. But there's one city in Egypt that had no darkness. Verse 22. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places they lived. Chapter 8, verse 3, and chapter 9, verse 4 speak of God making a distinction 
between Israel and Egypt. It was a way to say, you want to know where my favor rests? My favor rests on them. How could you see it? You could see clearly who was in darkness and who was in light by the way that they chose to live. Come on now. We're Christians. But if we only define ourselves by what we don't do, nobody's going to notice that. Well, I don't do this and I don't do that. Are you different from a Mormon? Are you different from a Jehovah's Witness? Do the Saudis have you beat in your little moral list of what you do and don't do? Because Christians are defined by what we do. We're defined by obedience to the king. The Goshen factor is we embrace the fact that it's getting dark all around us. We smile into the face of it and we say, look how good God is, Natalie. He's accenting. He's spotlighting his people. We don't have to fret. It's so that we can help but stand out. Y'all know not long ago we preached on seven days of praise? Yeah. yeah, you do seven days of praise, your neighbors will notice. I guarantee you my neighbors think something's weird about us. They're curious. My neighbor Mike, he's interested. Every time he sees me go on for a long time and come back, he goes, where'd you go? What'd you do? Tell me. Why'd y'all go there again? Yeah. Then he began saying, I'm a part of a church. It started like that. It was really neat. We, we felt close like that back then. He says those things to me. You can see there's a certain envy there because there's a seed of salvation there that God wants to water. And the only thing that he's noticed is that we're weird. Our whole church crams into our house on Monday nights. There's nowhere to park. When we get things, we tend to give them away. And he's been the recipient of those things many times. He longs for when his church was like that. He didn't go to a bad church, but you know what happened? It got so big and so self-absorbed that their budget is about them now. So he withdrew from all leadership and now he just sits in the congregation. Come on, a place where Christianity once reigned and has now fallen. What happened? They began to look the wrong way. Let's let the Goshen factor happen. Let's let the darkness around us give us a chance to shine brightly. Okay, how many of you in here occasionally, once in a while, think it's okay, and I'm going to tell you, I do. That way you don't feel bad about raising your hand. Occasionally, once in a while, it is, it's nice to do something for yourself. Let's just say you got a pedicure, a haircut, I don't know, right? Okay, me too. Maybe next time we go do it, we can look for somebody on the way that never could do it and do it for them. Do you think that... It would be a little different when he walked into the nail salon and said, Oh, honey, you haven't been here so long. <laughs> if you have a stranger with you and you said, uh, They're with me today. Do you think that would be different? Come on. There are all kinds of ways to have a Goshen factor. But if we don't do something, well, friends, we can see we're in danger of needing, needing, needing another reformation. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay, here's the last things we want to get to. I want to show you how this looks in a personal life. Turn with me to Isaiah 49. Our vision is one life, one family, one nation. Something special happens when the people of God are a light in the darkness. Something even more special happens when each individual sees it as their personal mandate. In Isaiah 49, we're going to see a national call. Tell me when you're there. Isaiah 49, picking up in verse 6. 
You have heard these things. Look at them all. I'm not in 49. I'm sorry. Here's 49. He says, It is too small a thing for you, my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Primarily, if you just had to guess, theologians, who would that be speaking of? Primarily. Somebody whispered it back there. You got it right. What was it? Jesus. Jesus. That, that would primarily be the person that that fell on, would it not? Didn't he bring back the tribes of Jacob? The Jewish nation saw this because Messiah had not come, obviously, prior to Jesus, as a national mandate. Did you see that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees one time? He said, your disciples go out and make twice the sons of hell that you already are. And Paul said, your name's blasphemed among the Gentiles because, or God's name's blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. There was Jewish evangelical um, groups. They saw this as a personal issue as a nation, rather, that wanted to be a light. One of the things they thought had to happen first is the oppressor had to be thrown off, right? So Messiah would be good for that. When the king of the Jews came, he reorganized his people. He called them out of darkness and into light, and the gospel is full of that. But who is the one guy more than any other that applied the verse that says, I will make you a light to the Gentiles. Oh, he took a national calling and he made it very personal because he followed in the footsteps of Jesus. The very scripture that undoubtedly either speaks of Israel or the king of Israel, he takes as a very personal mandate. Look at Acts 13. We've got just a handful of scriptures left. Go to Acts 13. In Acts 13... Look at 46. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. Boy, he wouldn't be invited back to preach. We now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Who was it spoken to? It was either spoken to Israel or the king of Israel. But they have now taken it as their personal mandate. Do you believe that God cares for the orphans? Yes. Do you believe He cares for the widows? Yes. Do the Proverbs say that He hears the needy and satisfies them with food? Does it say that? What happens when we take that as our personal mandate? Your life begins to stand out. When you stop saying God is a father to the fatherless and you start saying, I personally want to be a father to the fatherless, you begin to stand out. People even whisper about you and begin to say, you know, he's kind of fanatical. Even among remnant churches. And they say, oh, you know, I don't know how they spend so much time and money doing those things. Because God's work has become my work. That's why. Because my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is what John 4 says. We've learned to quote these things. When do scriptures about God's cares, God's uh, goals, God's directives become your directives as His people? This is what we're trying to encourage you towards. 
We're trying to encourage you to, like Paul, hear a national scripture or a scripture that maybe you've always applied to Jesus and apply it to your own life. Listen to the way that he says it later in Acts. Is that okay? Yeah. Acts 26. So you don't have to go far. It won't just exhaust your finger. In Acts 26, here comes verse 15. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. What is our job, friends? If it's dark all around us, that just means in every direction we look, we should be able to see something God would want us to do. Are y'all like me that you've spent too much time on your knees going, Lord, what is my purpose? Lord, what do you want of me? And you've been praying about it and praying about it and praying about it. It's a dark world. Do you really have to look that hard to find something you can do for him? Or has that simply become an excuse for our apathy? CJ's about to leave. He's going to Puerto Rico, right? CJ's going to Puerto Rico to learn a trade. If he goes and learns that trade but never works in it, will that feel like wasted time? Yes. He's taking part of his life to go learn a trade. What's he want to do with it? Well, he hopes to be able to one day support a family. He hopes one day to have a life that is autonomous and independent, where he can obey God and go where God says and do what God says. Am I wrong, CJ? I mean, that's the hope of every healthy, normal young man. I want you to put this in spiritual terms, though. If we are learning our trade by reading the Bible and we never hope to actually independently be able to go do it, do you see where the dysfunction is in that? How many years can we spend in the seminary of church? Now, look, I get it. I can't go to a foreign mission field. I can't do this. I can't do... Your pastor's not telling you you have to go to Malaysia. What I'm trying to tell you is real life begins when you truly start to care about someone else's needs more than your own. That is so far beyond 10% in two days a week. It really is. It's so far beyond that. It is the radical abandonment of your life and concern for your security. Remember in worship we were praying? We agreed that the Lord cared more about our lives than we cared about our own. Now, was that prayer really true? Are we fighting with him over concern for our lives? What will we eat? What will wear? What will make us happy? What will be a fulfilling life for us? Obedience is a fulfilling life, friends. That's where real contentment comes from. That's why Paul said, I could have a lot, I could have a little. I've learned that godliness and contentment is great gain because obedience is where he found his niche, so to speak. Here's our final two words of encouragement. Can you say two scriptures? Two All right, now that's been two witnesses. I said it and you said it. I won't break my word. Two scriptures. The first one is 2 Peter 1. It'll be the 19th verse. Tell me when you're there. Because I don't want to go on without you. I love you. 
I'm going to be in India for a while. Other men are going to bring the word. Woody and Melody are going to come. They're going to bring the word. Brothers in this church are going to come and bring the word. You know what you'll admire most? You'll admire the ones whose lives agree with their word. You will. You'll instantly be moved by it. Y'all in 2 Peter? Yes. In 2 Peter 1, 19. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. Was the word of the prophets not certain before? We have the word of the prophets made more certain. Was it not certain before? <laughs> well, it was certain, but now it's more certain. How does something become more certain? Well, we can hear that God loves the poor. We can hear that God is a father to the fatherless. We can hear that God cares about the oppressed, that He cares about the orphan and the widow. But you become certain of it when you see somebody act it out. The reason the words of the prophets have become more certain to them is they have seen what the prophets said physically walk in front of them. You know what that was, friends? That was the incarnation. They saw it. You know what you get to be? The incarnation of God's will in somebody's life. Say, like, man, that sounds, are you sure you can say that? That's not blasphemous? No, it's not blasphemous to say you can be God's hand. It's not blasphemous to say that you can go do in God's name something. Jesus sent us to the nations to do it, to immerse them into his name. To, to absolutely envelop their lives and who His Father is and the power of His Spirit. He sent us to do it. He said it right before He ascended. And we've fallen into the trap of thinking that means getting somebody wet in a baptismal. You can get wet in a baptismal and never be immersed into His character. But boy, when somebody lives among you, works among you, serves you, cares for you, who didn't have to, when somebody brings a blessing from afar, the words of the Bible become more certain to you. You're baptizing them in what God is like. Come on, church, say amen. 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 That is... Well, maybe it's not as good to you as it is to me. I've, that, that was good to me. Was it good to you? Yes. And we have the words of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, the word becomes more certain to its hearers when the example is lived out in front of them. It's our job to give attention to our task. It's time to shine in dark places. That's our job to shine in dark places. I told you two scriptures. Turn with me to Ephesians 5 and we have our last one. Mom, you love the book of Ephesians, don't you? My mama quotes Ephesians 4 to me all of the time. I have one of those runaway sense of humor. And uh, it's good to be reminded that it's necessary to be edified to each other. In Ephesians 5, pick up in verse 8 with me. Are y'all going to pick up with me in verse 8? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. y'all want to close, right? Yeah. <laughs> For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Every time we walk out and we see and we go, man, it's dark out here. This is yucky. These people are saying yucky things. They're doing yucky things. Like I sat across from somebody yesterday doing some pretty yucky things. But you know what I was reminded of while I was sitting there? 
I'd be just like him except for Jesus. Amen. In fact, my father was just like him. And I don't know, but I bet my father's father was just like him. In fact, we could probably go all the way back to Adam and find out there's an illustrious line of sinners in my family. And if it weren't for Jesus, none of us would have anything noteworthy or meritorious. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. That is not going to happen by living a self-centered life. None of the apostles were self-centered. They gave their lives for the gospel. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. You know, if you're reading this for the first time, you'd go, find out what pleases the Lord. Man, that's, that's powerful. We need to do that. Of course, I'm telling you what pleases the Lord. We're taking all of the work out of it for you because we're in the point-and-click generation. We're telling you what pleases the Lord is for you to care more about other people than yourselves. You don't even have to work to find that out. It's work to demonstrate it, though. So I found myself stranded in a gas station yesterday. I had a debit card that apparently has never been associated with the account I was trying to use it on. The bank had no record of it. And the problem is I'd driven across a big lake and was now out of gas. And I needed to use the debit card so that I could drive back across the lake where my family was. Is that a problem? I know you're so spiritual that you would have prayed, you would have walked out upon the water and carried the jet ski on your shoulder. No problem for you. For me, this was a problem. So I called Chase. Customer service was unable to provide an answer for me. So we hung up. 30 minutes went by. I stood there and bit my nails. You know when your vehicle's parked at a gas pump with a nozzle in it, there's a line. You're now at a cash register, there's a line. And you know what everybody's thinking. This joker forgot he doesn't have any money, right? Does the hair on your neck stand up in those situations? I was a little concerned. 19 or 20 year old girl was tattooed all over her neck had some pretty unsightly bruises didn't look like she had the easiest lot walked over to me and she said sir if you could use some money I'd be happy to give it to you wow I don't know for sure but I don't believe this young lady is a church goer I wonder how many church goers did pass me by there so I took $5 from her, prayed, got to the other side of the lake, and drove back, and came. We did what Jesus would do for her. We blessed her exorbitantly. We told her, I wish to God that there were more Christians like you in the world. And she began to cry and tried to give the money back. See, even a lost person who does something kind in the midst of this darkness stand out. What about you? How many Christians do you think passed me by? Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, that everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ's light will shine on you. This is my message to you. It's time to shine. Wake up, O sleeper. Let Christ's light shine on you. 
You be his reflection to the world. You want to go get a pedicure? Fine. Take somebody with you. Pick up somebody homeless. At least they'll get their money's worth with the pedicure, right? What if we did what the gospel said and we went out into the highways and the byways and we invited the lame and the crippled? That the world would take note. I know I would. Stand up, y'all. So we're about to have a reciprocal thing here. I want to pray for anybody who wants me to pray for them, but I want you to pray for me. This is my 19th uh, trip out of the country this year into another country. And it's July. And uh, I want to go in the power of God. I don't want to waste a trip. I don't want to waste your time, our efforts, the Lord's money. The Hutchinsons don't want to either. Hutchinsons, would y'all come down here? Mama, would you come down here? You've got the task of raising my children while I'm going. Come on down here. We want y'all to pray for us. Jam, come down here. And then, because you're going to cry down here and pray for us anyway, if you'd like prayer for anything, raise your hand. Raise your hand while you're down here. Say, hey, I'd like prayer. And let us pray for you. We're a family. We pray as a family. You heard that salvation is an individual choice? It is, but one person's choice affects another. One life, one family, one nation. I bet there are other people in here that have your same prayer request, have your same desire. But if we're used to just leaving and going to eat our food and move about our day, it's easier for everybody to do it. It's kind of a bystander effect. But I have noticed that when one of you is bold, when one of you stands up and says, I need to learn to live a more selfless life. I wish I could put this into practice and I believe the Lord's calling me to. Suddenly someone else goes, me too. And then me too. Maybe everybody's just waiting on you to start. That's a heavy load, isn't it? Maybe nobody moves if you don't. That's what it is to be the Goshen of the world. The spotlight is on you. Hey, play some music. And uh, Brother Charlie, Brother Steve, would y'all come